who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. Realm presents Bullet Catcher. Season 2, Episode 2. House of the Moon. We pass through another series of rooms, each one separated by more curtains that color everything violet, then turquoise, then gold. In each room, there are people smoking or chatting softly or gambling with dice and cards. Some notice us passing, looking up at us from their daydreams or hand of cards. Their pupils big. Not black, but silver, like coins catching the light. Finally, we come to a small private room, which is really just a recess at the back, separated by heavier curtains. Cass is there, sitting on the bench, hunched over a table, where the glass smoking jar has been pushed aside to make room for the papers she must have been discussing with the man sitting across from her. She stands and smiles when she sees us. You made it, she says. And then her smile flattens out and she's all business again. This is Beck. She gestures to the man who stands at the sound of his name and extends a hand to Lobo. He wears a smile from ear to ear. A con man's smile, full of gold and half-truths and flat-out lies. In my time, I've seen that same expression painted on countless faces. Back in sand, not a week went by without some snake oil salesman passing through, selling some new mystery cure or wonder drug. Beck wears a large coat, lined with dozens of small pockets, Delicate wire glasses with round frames balance on his nose. His hair and mustache are perfectly groomed and waxed. 
but his coat and boots are old, patched, and grimy. Beck, he repeats, shaking Lobo's hand vigorously. You must be the bullet catcher I've been hearing so much about. Lobo grimaces. Beck laughs and waves for us to sit. No need to look so worried, friend. You're quite safe, believe me. You're in a moon house. No one here wants the attention that reporting you would bring. Moon house? Beck smiles again and seems to notice me for the first time. And you must be the apprentice, he says. Aren't you a button? A button? I don't know what he means, but I'm already offended. As in cute as a button. A moon house, my dear child, is where you presently find yourself. It is a safe port where people of all social and economic classes, of all races and genders, can come together, relax, and forget the cares and burdens of the world. Some say in all of the North and the South lands that moon houses are the last truly free place. Cass snorts. It's a place where people come to get high, she says. They call it getting moonshot. Smoke enough and it turns your eyes silver and makes you half blind. Ah, but some say that in exchange, it gives you sight beyond sight, Beck says. Reaching into the pocket of his coat and producing a paper satchel, which he unfolds on the table, revealing a small mound of what looks like fine metal shavings. What do you say, child? Put that back in your pocket, Lobo says, in a voice that chases the smile from Beck's face, along with the paper satchel which he scoops up quickly and disappears into one of his pockets. Cass leans in and shows Beck her knife. Offer the young and drugs again and see what happens. We are here for the papers, nothing else. Beck clears his throat and manages an unsure smile. Of course, he says. As I was saying before your friends arrived, here we have three sets of traveling papers, the passports that will get you into the Northland. The land deed will vouchsafe y'all as moneyed individuals, and, most importantly, the three tickets will grant you passage on the steamer, northward bound, traveling up the river to the Northland capital city of Gildan at six o'clock tomorrow morning. Lobo picks up one of the passports and examines it. You read, old-timer? Lobo doesn't bother with the con man's jab. He scans the paper, then looks at Beck and says, How deep do these go? Beck's face screws into a grimace. They're pretty thin, truth be told. How thin? asks Cass. Paper thin, Cards on the table. If anyone tries to follow up on anything in these documents, they'll know they're forged. Cass and Lobo share a look across the table. But look at them. They're so good, no one is going to think twice whether they're legit or not. Lobo shakes his head and tosses the papers back on the table. These aren't good enough, he says, and starts to stand. Lobo, Cass says, extending a hand toward him. We don't have time to try somewhere else. It's this or nothing. Lobo looks at me. You said no matter what, I remind him. And he sighs and sits back down. Beck's smile returns. Cash on delivery, he says, extending his hand toward Cass, 
who reaches into her coat and produces a few folded certificates. Beck snatches the paper from her and stuffs it into one of his coat pockets. That's odd. I've never known a merchant or mercenary born who doesn't count their money as soon as they get it in their hands. In Sand, working at Dimitri's, I saw more gunfights than I can remember that started over what amounted to spare change. And I'm not the only one who thinks it's strange. Beck starts sweating something fierce under Cass's and Lobo's scrutiny. He lifts his hat to wipe his brow and, in the same motion, stands and says, Well, it's been a pleasure doing business with y'all, but I better get to moseying. He makes for the exit, but Cass stands and blocks his path, producing her knife again and pricking him in the stomach. He freezes. The blood runs from his face. I follow Lobo as he goes to the curtain and peeks out. It takes me a moment, but now I see them. The cold black stares of the gunslingers mixed in with the moonshot silver-eyed patrons spread across the cushions. Lobo drops the curtain, turns, and grabs Beck by the collar, lifting him up on his tiptoes as he growls, You sold us out. Beck holds up his hands. I don't know what you're... Lobo picks him up and throws him back down on the bench. He pins Beck down with his knee and clamps his hand over his mouth to keep him from calling for help. Cass comes around, knife in hand, and sticks the point in his ear. If you don't want your next few breaths to be your last, you better answer my next question honestly. Do you understand? Beck nods. He stares wide-eyed and unblinking at Cass. Lobo slowly removes his hand from Beck's mouth. What have you told the gunslingers? Almost nothing, I swear, he says in a barely controlled whisper. Lobo clamps his mouth shut again, and Cass pushes the knife ever so slightly into his ear. Beck screams into Lobo's hand. I keep watch at the curtain. The screams are muffled and the gunslingers stay put, but I count at least a dozen sets of eyes watching. Again, Lobo releases his hand from Beck's mouth. He looks stricken and pale, and I almost feel sorry for him. Everyone here knows it doesn't matter what he says. He double-crossed the bullet catcher, and he'll die for it. I swear, I told them almost nothing. They already knew your names. I told them that I was selling you papers, that's all. Do they know where we're going? If they do, they didn't get it from me. I didn't even mention the boat tickets, just the passports. The passports, are they any good? They're good, they're good. I whip them up just like I'd do any other job. Lobo and Cass look at each other. God's honest truth. Beck pleads. I had to make the setup look good, didn't I? The papers are good. Better than good. Really. In the other room, a moonshot woman tries to stand and stumbles over one of the low tables, sending the large smoking jar full of water crashing to the ground. The shattering sound causes Cass and Lobo to turn toward the curtain. I can see it on Beck's face. He thinks he sees a way out. Don't, I think. Just don't. But there's no stopping him. He screams, and without looking down, Cass plunges the knife into his ear. I close my eyes. And when I open them again, I'm met with the dead man's empty stare. The blood trickling from his ear is the only evidence of violence.
But there's no time to pity him, because when I look back through the curtain, I'm met with the approaching figures of a dozen gunslingers, alerted by Beck's cry. Cass quickly gathers up the papers. Then she pushes everything else off the table, and she and Lobo pick up each end and hold it in front of them, with the tabletop facing forward, like a long wooden shield. Behind us, cub, Lobo says. I move aside, and he and Cass charge forward through the curtain, running over the two closest gunslingers. They drop the table, flipping over it into the surprised crowd of gunslingers. I catch the bold over men just as they're trying to stand and manage to knock them out with two swift punches. I look up in time to see the rest of the gunslingers scrambling for cover behind the tiled pillars lining the big room. One of them notices me, and I'm just able to prop the table up and duck behind it before she gets off a couple shots. The bullets splinter the table, getting low and covering my head. I wait at the barrage under the shower of wood, counting the shots and stealing my courage. The sixth bullet passes by. Even through the commotion of fighting and gunfire, I hear the telltale sound of a revolver flicking open and trembling fingers clumsily pushing bullets into the chamber. Springing from behind the table, I charge towards the pillar. The gunslinger notices me and snaps the chamber closed, letting the last bullets plink to the floor. She levels the gun and pulls the trigger. Click. The chamber is empty. One blow to the knee sends her to the ground. I kick the gun away and flatten her with a fist to the head. Pressing my back against the pillar, I dare a peek around the side. Lobo and Cass stand out in the open, back to back, encircled by the remaining gunslingers. Nine sets of guns are pointed square at them, but for now, all is still as both parties size each other up. The tiles around the room are riddled with bullet holes. Moonshot patrons lie strewn about on blood-soaked pillows, and who knows if they're dead or merely sleeping. On the far side of the room, the bartender watches, his head just poking up from behind the bar. The only sound is the clicking of the gunslingers reloading their revolvers, bullet by bullet. By the looks on each of their faces, I know who will keep their cool and who will be first to do something stupid. The gunslinger farthest from me looks like he's been trying all year to grow a beard and has nothing to show for it but a bit of fuzz on his chin. His eyes are big and scared, and his shooting hand trembles so bad you'd think he was trying to aim from the back of a horse mid-gallop. Quickened footsteps descend the entrance stairway, disrupting the stillness. The bouncer appears under the stone arch near the bartender. What the hell? But he has no time to finish. The young gunslinger with the twitchy shooting hand pivots at him and pulls the trigger. The bouncer drops like a felled tree. Then he swivels back to Cass and pulls the trigger again. I watch Cass judge the flight of the bullet by how he's holding the gun. With her hands cupped as if catching water from a spout, she reaches out to a spot through which the bullet will pass and when the shot comes, she catches it in the palms of her hands. She turns, bringing her arms in towards her body, the bullet gaining energy, and then when she's spun 180 degrees, she extends her arms and lets the bullet fly. The gunslinger never has a chance. He catches his own bullet right between the eyes. It all lasts less than a second. Then the bullets start flying everywhere, smashing tile and glass and bone. I'm the invisible girl again just like when I was young. 
I'm unseen, forgotten. I weave through the chaos, swatting away any shots and shrapnel that come near. My heart thumps like a drum. But I feel loose, calm. I charge the nearest gunslinger, who's focused on the tornado that is Cass and Lobo's deflecting blows. I skirt low to the ground, finding a sliver of glass from one of the broken jars on my way. The shard feels warm in my hand. It feels like it's vibrating with energy. And when I'm only a few feet from the unsuspecting gunslinger, I leap and plunge it into his side. He's too surprised to make a sound. He goes down with a heavy thud, silent in the chaos. I stay low behind the body. Only three left now. The rest lay still or writhing on the ground. There's a knife on the dead man's belt, and in one move, I pull it from its sheath and let it fly. It finds a home in the chest of another gunslinger. Lobo drops a third, and now there's only one left. He notices me for the first time, and maybe because he thinks I'm the easier target, or maybe because he's thinking, hell, if I die, I might as well take someone with me, he swings his gun around from Lobo to me and pulls the trigger. <sighs> but I'm ready. My limbs move automatically, in the way Lobo made me practice too many times to count. I reach out and catch the bullet, cupping it in my hands like it's a small, fierce creature. In my palms, the bullet pulses with frustrated energy. Cass takes out the last shooter with her knife. Looking down, I open my hands and marvel at the piece of metal in my bloody palms. It doesn't even look like a bullet anymore. It holds none of the fear and power it once had. Funny how I've spent so much of my life coming to terms with feeling helpless. How strange it is to feel so suddenly powerful. We'll need to suture your palm, Cass says in a quickened voice. She grabs my wrist and pulls me toward the bar, where the bartender cowers and backs away against the wall when we approach. Cass ignores him, grabbing a bottle, biting the cork, and spitting it on the floor. Open your hand, she says. And when I do, she pours the clear alcohol over my cut, turning the blood rose pink before washing it away. The sting barely registers. Sounds, smells, feeling, all are muted under my sudden sense of strength. I feel ten feet tall. I feel like all these bullets are nothing but dull stones thrown in frustration by children. I feel invincible. Almost immediately, the wound starts seeping blood. Lobo comes over with a torn strip of cloth and ties it around my hand. We need to leave, he says. I have a place, Cass answers. She turns to the barman, takes out her knife, and puts it on the bar. Her initials, C.S., etched into the handle, are lacquered in blood. When the gunslingers come back, I'll tell them we were robbed, he says, raising his hands higher. Some posse I'd never seen before. Cass nods and takes back the knife. They each take one of my hands and hustle me out of the moon house. Like a mother and father shepherding their child across a street. And in my days, I let them. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. 
And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Do you know how much you have in common with some of your favorite celebrities, leaders, Newsmakers, I'm Evelyn, the host of Reppin, where you'll meet notable people you think you know. You'll find out who they really are and what they represent. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts. Casa's safe house is the top floor apartment in a seedy old hotel at the edge of the neighborhood. It's a large room with a high ceiling. The ornate, decomposing molding around the windows and the walls speaks to the building's faded opulence. Dull red paint peels in long ribbons from the walls. A moth-eaten rug lies across the floorboards. An old four-poster bed stands against one wall, large and defiant, like an ancient plateau on the flat rim of the desert. The hotel is not far from the moon house, and we watch in silence from the window as carriages full of gunslingers rumble down the street in the direction of the shootout. When they pass, a noticeable relief enters the room and we breathe easier. Cass collapses into a chair near the window and scatters the papers on the table. I fall on the bed, the cracked, water-stained ceiling spinning above me. Lobo drags a chair across the floor and sets it beside the bed. He takes a seat, unfolds his suture kit, takes my hand in his, and begins sewing up my wound. I'd usually do it myself, like Lobo taught me, but he can tell I'm not totally there, so he does it himself without asking. The needle barely pierces my muted perception, but by the end, when he runs cool, clean water over the wound and wraps it in a new bandage, I feel more like my old self and utterly exhausted. We gather around the table. The sun sits on the western rooftops, casting cool orange light through the ancient wavering glass. Dried blood is splashed on our clothes, on our faces, and boots. The three of us are bone-tired. But I also know that what I feel is only a fraction of what Lobo and Cass must be feeling. They've been at this for decades now. We should retreat, Lobo says. We can't give up on Nico, I say, 
staring out the window. My voice is cold. I knew this conversation was coming. Cub, we can't help him if we get ourselves killed. Then let's not get ourselves killed. Hun, Cass says, putting her elbows on the table and leaning close to me. It's more than that. They're looking for us. Soon our faces will be everywhere, and there will be no hiding, no safe places. You must have some contacts in the north, someone who you can rely on. Bobo leans back and closes his eyes. The evening light splashes on the deep wrinkles and scars of his face. All those bridges burned long ago. I look at Cass. What if it were your son? The look on her face makes me regret bringing it up. Cass is a hundred miles away, back in her oasis in front of the tree with her son's name carved on it, his grave. I'd not let anything stop me, she says. Lobo opens his eyes, squinting at the light. Cass. They share a look. Then Lobo stands with a groan. The boat leaves early. We'll have to be up even earlier. First light. Cass and I watch him in silence as he limps out the door, likely headed for the roof to have a smoke. Is he worth it? Cass asks. Your brother. I take a breath and let it out slow. That don't enter into it when it comes to blood. Hmm she says, looking out the window. What? A feeling is all. What kind of feeling? A feeling like maybe you've realized you don't have to answer to this world anymore. That's kicked you like a dog whenever you tried to get anything for yourself. It's not that. Think on it, is all I'm saying. Maybe you're strong enough to not give a damn about other people getting in your way. But when the sun sets, you still got to answer to yourself. When morning breaks, I sit up, stiff and aching from the day before. Cass and Lobo lay sleeping on the bed. Frost gathers in the corners of the window frame, illuminated by the yellow light of the street lamps below. I gather myself from the floor, sloughing off the blankets. Dragging myself to the bathroom, I sit on the edge of the copper-green clawfoot tub and turn on the tap. There's no hot water. Waiting for it to fill, I catch a glimpse of myself in the cracked mirror over the wash basin. Who is this person staring back at me? Tight muscles under sun-stroked skin and scars. How old is she now? Sixteen? Seventeen. How long does she have left? Cass's words rattle in my head. But I shake them away. There's too much danger in thinking on what she said. Too high a chance she's right. That this is all about revenge on a world I grew up fearing. The tub fills and I shut off the tap. Stripping quickly, I drop myself like a stone into the water. In this place, there's nothing so luxurious as soap. I take a dampened wash rag and rub the dirt and blood from my body, 
Then I dunk my head below the water and run my fingers through my hair until the patches matted with blood feel clean and unknotted. When I step out, the water is black. And after I unplug the stopper and the water empties, I spend a good few minutes cleaning away the grime for Lobo and Cass. When I step back into the main room, I find that they've woken and are busy preparing things. They've laid out our disguises on the bed. Mine is a frilly yellow dress, complete with a flower pattern and ruffles, with low heels, long white gloves, and a brightly colored hair ribbon to match. I don't know if I can pull this getup off. I haven't worn a dress since the orphanage when it was part of the uniform. Come on, Cass says wearily, picking up a small box. I'll help you with your makeup. My what? She stops at the door to the bathroom and looks back at me. At the very least, we need to cover up the scars. You won't pass as the granddaughter of a wealthy southern landowner, not even a rural one, like that. She makes a circle in the air with her finger, wringing my face in an imaginary lasso. Grumbling, I gather up my clothes and follow her back into the bathroom. An hour later, in the clear morning light, we stand at the bottom of the ramp leading up to the huge steamboat, surrounded by wealthy North and Southlanders, waiting for the crewmen guarding the ramp to stand aside and usher us aboard. I'm amazed to look around and feel like we don't seem too out of place. Even Cass and Lobo don't look unlike the other more moneyed Southlanders, the ranch owners who grew up working long hours under the hot southern sun tending to crops or cattle. This morning, Cass's work on my makeup seemed so practiced, it made me wonder who she was before she was a bullet catcher, before she was a soldier, before she was a mercenary. The scars lining and dotting my face and arms are invisible, unless someone looks closely. Distractedly, I trace the gap on my left hand where my trigger finger used to be, where Cass has cut off the finger of the glove and sewn it closed. There's a commotion from somewhere in the crowd, and looking up, I spot a few gunslingers combing through the crowd, harassing some of the people waiting to board. Sweat beads on my forehead, despite the coolness of the morning. Maybe the gunslingers' presence is normal. Maybe they're just part of the pre-boarding routine. Or maybe they're looking for us. Lobo elbows me and whispers, Relax. You look like someone who's on the run. I am. I shoot back through clenched teeth. No, today you're my granddaughter, and we have more money than we know what to do with, and we're on vacation. So, like I said, relax. I take out the forged papers and read the name printed there. Clarissa Montgomery. I read the name again and again, so I won't forget. I play out a little scene in my head, where I introduce myself and Lobo and Cass to a host of wealthy Northlanders. Howdy, y'all. I'm Clarissa Montgomery, and this here is my papa, Jose Montgomery, and my gammy, Joan. Clarissa Jose Joan. The hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. That's when I spot the gunslinger weaving through the crowd in our direction. 
As he passes each person, he stoops to look them in the face and then checks a paper in his hand. No doubt about it. He's looking for us. He inches closer through the crowd until he's nearly on top of us. Lobo and Cass see him too. Lobo's hand is on my shoulder, keeping me grounded. Cass's hand is on her hip, where her knife is hidden. Then, from the deck, a sharp whistle blows, loud enough to draw everyone's attention. Let them on! Comes a shout. The crowd cheers sleepily, and the man standing at the end of the ramp steps aside. We begin to funnel to the ramp, and when I look up, the gunslinger is gone, lost in the sea of faces. And when we pass the crewman, he glances at our papers and waves us on board without a second thought. You're listening to Bullet Catcher Season 2 by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, the podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. I bring you two episodes a week. Every Monday, I cover something from a wide variety of topics, covering everything from feminist faves throughout history like Audre Lorde, listener coming out stories, and other hot-button topics like toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement, as well as plenty feminist history, the good and the controversial. And then every Friday, I bring you a mini What's in the News episode to keep you up to date with everything that's going on today in the world. And with over 580 episodes available to you right now, there's plenty of good stuff to listen to. You can listen to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rage on. Bye. Bullet Catcher is written by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Marco Palmieri and executive produced by Molly Barton. Performed by Inez Del Castillo. Audio produced, directed, and designed by Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme composed by Hashem Asadolahi with performances by Justin Morell and Josh Deutsch. Cover art by Christine Barcelona.